Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community. A number of founding teams that have met in there. A number of nonprofits that have been established a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Cam Hosey, CEO of Eight Rivers Capital. Eight Rivers develops sustainable infrastructure scale solutions to help companies and governments profitably achieve their net zero aspirations, as well as addressing other important societal problems. They use a unique model to commercialize technologies in blue oceans, fields that are lacking in creative disruption and outside thinking. From creating new ideas to helping large corporations solve old problems, their ecosystem and process guide how they think. The current Eight Rivers portfolio includes NetPower, Carbonate, Tarty, Calcite, Kodox, and many others. Now, this was a fascinating discussion. I've not come across a company quite like Eight Rivers. We cover their origin story, their criteria for what types of projects to take on, what stage they get involved, their process for taking new technologies to market their willingness to consider outside technology versus developing in-house, what type of capital they have, what types of collaborations they do as they bring new technologies to bear, and some recent success stories as well. I learned a lot from this one, and I hope you do as well. Cam, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Jason. Good to be here. Thanks for coming. And I was telling you before we started recording, but Eight Rivers has been on my radar for quite some time. And I, I've been particularly excited for this one because coming from where I'm coming from with a primarily digital technology background, but now being three and a half years into a focus exclusively on climate change, it's clear that you know, that atoms really matter. And so the work you're doing with atoms and putting infrastructure front and center is both so important, but it's also one that's just pretty foreign to me and to a lot of others like me coming from the more Silicon Valley types of companies. And so I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to learn from you today. Yeah. And like I said, like, I really appreciate you having me here. And you know, one of the things which I think has been distinguishing for Eight Rivers is that you know, a lot of us come from an infrastructure or big tech background. But at the end of the day, the climate is a physical story. Like it's CO2 molecules that are up in the atmosphere that come from somewhere. They either have to be pulled and they have to be pulled out through physical processes. And so what we've tried to do from the beginning is focus on infrastructure scale solutions that can replace the emitting assets, which actually are the backbone of the problem today. And, you know, I think as an organization, one thing that's distinguished us is a complete willingness to, to grapple with CO2 in the most literal of senses. So now that's it. Look, the digital part of it's going to play a big thing here too. And it's honestly somewhere where I have less background, so I'm looking forward to the conversation. 
So you're not you're not going to do a mobile application for the fourth project that you take on this year? <laughs> Possibly not. Possibly not. Uh, unfortunately, the steel and concrete is too well attached to the ground in most instances to be truly mobile. So if I was sitting next to you at a wedding and I said, what do you do for work or what does Eight Rivers do? How would you answer that? So look, personally, I'm the CEO of the organization that said I've been with Eight Rivers since around about 2011, 2012. Like a lot of people, as they're changing careers, there was a gray space in the middle as to whether it was was a question of am I doing this or am I not? Eight Rivers as a whole, we focus on infrastructure scale solutions for energy transition problems. And in that sense, we're actually, we've tried to build this out as a platform of different technologies rather than being technology specific. Now that said, the thing that we're most well known for is the technology which is now being commercialized through NetPower. The underlying NetPower technology is called the alum fed cycle. And the two, Rodney Alum and Jeremy Fedfed, are both partners still to this day here at Eight Rivers. So we as an organization have tried to focus on the development of technological but commercial solutions and then help to lead the commercialization of those technologies out into the market. So we acted as the corporate founder of NetPower. We led its capital raising. We then were substantially involved in its operational management for the first several years of its life. And as that company has now matured, it has its own management team in place. We still act obviously as a shareholder and a manager, but also looking to deploy NetPower projects. And so Eight Rivers today, we're trying to, we're building ourselves out as a technology agnostic decarbonization solutions platform where we look to partner with large organizations and we'll bring in infrastructure scale solutions that actually deliver enormous climate impacts for them. Fundamentally, typically touching CO2, like literally processes that will handle and touch CO2 and either sequester it or put it into products, etc. But overall, we're just also trying to come at this from the angle of, you know, all of it solutions that are deployable today that are economic and that can actually be adopted anywhere without too much cost penalty in order to actually have a meaningful impact on climate. And what's the origin story for Eight Rivers? When did it come about? How did it come about? Why did it come about? Two co-founders, Bill Brown and Miles Palmer. They were MIT roommates a long time ago. I won't say exactly because they probably don't want me to date them on air. They had taken varied career paths. One went into finance and the other went into technology development, particularly with military applications. And in the 2007-2008 timeframe, they reconnected and decided that that the innovation economy, whilst good for small applications, wasn't good for large things. Like the valley of death is a cliche, but it's a cliche which is very real, particularly for big things. And so wanting to come up with a business model that could actually enable global scale solutions, if you will, for hard problems. Don't lose your train of thought, but what is a big thing as you're defining it here? Power generation, transportation fuels, director of capture, building products, etc. Like truly big problems like that. Now, early in the in the course of the company, there was a focus. It wasn't particularly energy transition related. There were a bunch of different technologies pursued that were, you know, ambitious in their own way. And some of them are still very much kind of like in process as we do that, but realized that we had, you know, there was an early win with the creation of the net power technology. And then the lessons that developed out of that, we realized that we were able to extrapolate those into a bunch of adjacent spaces, whether it was hydrogen production, whether it was different gas processing technologies, director capture, etc., whereby we could take the core lessons of what enabled the net power breakthrough and actually deliver a much broader set of solutions coming out of that. So again, you know, the Eight Rivers origin story, really a couple of college friends coming together, putting it together, uh, and then we developed these technological solutions, put together very, very diverse teams on them, almost no one with background in the space, and applied those different lessons along with a lot of elbow grease and hustle and so forth. And, you know, at this point, I think into the technologies that, you know, have been developed here and to Eight Rivers itself, we've raised a little bit north of half a billion dollars of capital at this point. And what's the Cam Hosey origin story and how and when and why did those origin stories intersect? So circular, ultimately, or circuitous is probably the better way of putting it. I'm a New Zealander and I was a lawyer by background. So actually, I started off doing energy litigation, basically oil firms suing each other over rights for offshore leases and onshore leases in New Zealand for a couple of years. And then 
most New Zealanders, well, particularly you know lawyers and so forth, you'll work for a couple of years and you'll go overseas. And a very typical pathway is to go to London, one of the big firms. I wanted to go somewhere a little bit more unusual, what I thought would be a bit more exciting. And so I signed up in 2007 to go to Russia, actually, with an English law firm. And so I went to Russia and I started doing oil and gas deals and financial institution type of deals in, in Russia. So M&A, JVs, etc. Obviously, Emerging World learned to an incredible amount about the way industry actually operates out there in the real world as it's been done. But I was I was with Clifford Chance for about five years. In the middle of that, I took, you know, around about the GFC, I took nine months off and I came to Duke and I did a master's in international business law. And Bill Brown, one of the two co-founders, was also teaching some classes at Duke. I did some of his classes. I went back to Russia about a year after that. They, you know, net power emerged from the process and he reached out to me asking about some contacts for some of the early financing they were doing. One thing led to another. I was at the stage in my career where you decide, look, do you want to become a partner and do this for the rest of forever or do you not? And so I, I'd pretty much decided on the do not path and I was looking for a, you know, whether that meant I wanted to go towards investment banking or whether it meant going some other way entirely. And look, I looked at the net power technology and it was compelling on, you know, from what I knew of industry and what I knew of the technological need itself, it was compelling. So it was a pretty easy conversation with Bill where he said, look, you know, if you want to join, just come back and we'll just figure something out. And so I sent him a job description and I said, look, I'll be there in about three weeks. You can fire me after six months if it doesn't work out. And came back in and was just part of the, the very early team as we developed with this and have been along for the ride since. So I took off the lawyer hat, became very much part of the commercial team here. As chief, you know, about three, four years ago, maybe not quite that long, I became chief operating officer of the business as it was growing and then stepped into the CEO role about a year ago. So effectively, as we're taking these projects out for execution and delivery. And I've been picking up on these little tidbits of how you're describing your work at Eight Rivers. I, I hear about coming up with technology and, you know, pilots and deploying at commercial scale. And keep in mind that I don't have any direct experience in the trenches bringing this type of infrastructure to bear, but I'm dying to learn more about it because it is, as we discussed, so important for decarbonizing our global economy. Which aspects of that Maybe, actually, I'll take a step even back from that. Can you talk a bit about the process of bringing these new big power generation types of technologies to market and which aspects of that Eight Rivers focused on initially and then how your approach has evolved over the last you know decade or couple decades that you've been doing this work? Look, I mean, the th- first thing to acknowledge up front is that learning how to do this is a kind of continuing work in progress that, you know, I don't believe we've got the magic answer to this or that I don't believe there is a magic solution to this. We've got things which have worked and we try and apply those lessons. The process that we've tried to do historically, or at least if we say it on paper, is like we have targeted a problem rather than a technology per se. And so, you know, so look, power gen needs to be done without like large scale carbon capture or without large scale carbon emissions rather coming out the back end of it. And then just took a clean sheet approach to say, look, if you wanted to design a system from day one that had that end goal in mind, how would you do it? Because, and that's actually radically different from the way that most other carbon capture technologies for power generation have been developed. Because the way most of these have been developed is you have a power station, you have this technology and you have the the flue gas coming out the back end and you say okay well how am i going to capture the co2 out of that and so you have to bolt something on and it's an it's intrinsically parasitic like you're adding cost you're adding process and is always going to make it worse now by going with the net power technology or the allen fitbit cycle we said look if we were actually to go all the way back to the beginning on this and say look we wanted to end up with just captured carbon dioxide at the end how would you actually do that and so stripped it all the way back and intuitive leap the team really had right at the beginning was everyone's traditionally tried to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide being produced and that makes capture harder if you're trying to extract it from a flue gas stream you've got less and less carbon dioxide coming through then you're making your capture problem that much worse what our guys realize is actually let's flip that on its head let's try and produce as much carbon dioxide as possible not in an overall sense for the amount of carbon dioxide 
that'll be produced from a given amount of power output, but to say, look, make it so that the, the carbon dioxide itself in the stream is as pure as possible. And so they actually went back to the front side and flipped the inputs going into the system and made it so it's an oxy-combustion system. What that means is that we burn natural gas with pure oxygen. Oxygen is O2, natural gas is CH4. And that's like the limit of high school chemistry that you actually need to understand this. We basically put C's, H's and O's in the front end. You put them through a combustion process and C's, H's and O's come out the back end in a different form. In this instance, it was CO2 plus water comes out. Those are trivial to separate from each other. And we actually use the CO2 itself to provide the mass to spin a turbine. And so... In that sense, you know, so we we basically went back to the drawing board, started again, so look, how do we actually maximize the CO2 coming through this? Then realized that, okay, well, we can actually drive the CO, we can drive a turbine using this, and then the capture problem is trivial. Now, how do you make this make money? Like, what does the efficiency of this look like? And then we spent years, years doing the, the desktop engineering required to build the models for this thing, to make it all stick together, put together a business case for it, establish a company find financial partners, large strategics that had both the strategic vision, I would say, and also the requirement to transition their industries, found sponsors within those organizations, typically by going to the top. Then look, these are this is, this is a play which is gonna end up costing billions and billions of dollars in order to get deployed at scale. So it's gonna to have to be top down from the biggest organizations and then put together partnerships to do that. And the whole time we tried to keep 8Rivers itself relatively lean and agile and ready to you know, pick up the lessons learned coming through that process, continue to refine it and to continue to create new stuff. And can you talk a bit about the power generation landscape in general? How is the bulk of our power generated today? And then, I mean, it seems like there's a bunch of competing approaches for how it quote unquote should be generated going forward. And I say quote unquote, because it's so controversial and there's so many different opinions that all contradict each other. So, I mean, it'd be great to understand either the eight rivers view or the cam view or both and where those align or, you know, just like what's the the lay of the land before we get more into the specific technologies that you're bringing to market. Sure. Every prediction about power has been wrong since the beginning of time across the course of 15 or 20 years. No one no one believed that renewables were coming as strong as they were coming 15 years ago. Before that, no one believed that I think natural gas combined cycle was coming as it was going to be coming as strong as it was. So let's put like a very, very healthy, a very liberal health warning on what I'm about to say when I say, look, what is the direction of this and where does it go? The majority of power today is produced from fossil fuels, natural gas, coal, oil burning in some instances, not so much in the United States, but in plenty of the world that's the backbone of it and then there are meaningful and increasing amounts of renewables that are deployed on top of that you'll have a base load system which is producing you know the electricity always the grid always has to be there you've got to have the right amount being produced always and so you'll have a, a base load part of the system which may also be nuke which is just turned on it's producing power always and then you have Today, you have renewables, which are, you know, producing somewhere between, I don't even know the numbers, to be honest, somewhere between 10, 30%, some places it's probably higher than that in the US, that's producing this effectively uncontrollable capacity. Like when the wind blows, the wind blows and it produces power. Then in the middle, you have a flexible capacity, which is effectively required in order to balance what the renewables are doing and so forth. And most of that comes from natural gas today technology called natural gas combined cycle where you burn some natural gas you pass it over a gas turbine you then boil some steam you pass over some steam turbine and electrons come out the back end now the the eight rivers view on that would be it's a tremendously complex system and that all of it virtually all of it has climate related challenges inherent in it whether it's the the coal base load or the natural gas flex in the middle or even the natural gas base load when it's running in that that technologies need to be developed in order to address that and that also renewables you know that renewables are a gift like they're an incredible resource but the resource doesn't come with the ability to control the wind and it doesn't come with the ability to control the sun as yet and so you've got to build technologies which can actually enable and support a reliable grid while the build out of renewables continues apace. And so we've tried to focus on the the development of technologies that can actually provide that supporting function. Like at the end of the day, access to power is it's 
key for human social development. Like society would fall apart without a, you know, the grid is a modern miracle. And the fact that where you can plug it, you can plug whatever into the wall and the power comes out is a miracle in terms of human development and what it enables. And what the society that we've built on top of that. And so we've tried to focus on technologies that will effectively deliver the vital part of the grid, that baseload capacity, that flexible capacity, that also uses resources that you know exist are plentiful, are secure, that are out there in a way which is actually economic. Because if you look backwards, the one thing that the power industry has done very the hindsight is, say, look, the most economic solution in the power industry has won almost every instance. Like renewables today are competing on price for the part of the market that they're serving. And that's why you're seeing this enormous uptake in delivery. Like, you know, the hand of the market is saying, okay, you'll build out the supply chains, you'll build as many renewables as you can, because the part of the market that they're taking is is growing and the economics are driving their adoption. We've tried to focus relentlessly on technologies that will have a pathway to being the most economic solution as well. Because ultimately, the technologies that we've tried to develop, they have to be able to be deployed everywhere. Like if you could click your fingers and turn off America's power, all carbon emissions from the United States overnight, all you've really done is delay 1.5 degrees by a couple of years. You haven't actually solved anything. I mean, you might feel better about it. You'd be like, you know, look, we live in the cleanest country on earth, but like the, the atmosphere is global. And so you've got to create things that can be deployed everywhere so that they can be deployed without government regulation having to to mandate their existence. And so in that sense, we've also very much focused on making sure that we're creating economic products whereby people will choose to build them, particularly, or the build-out will come at scale because the hand of the market drives. Now, to try to parrot back what I think I just heard as a way to make sure that I understand before we move on, it sounds like there's baseload power, there's the flexible that you can turn up and turn down, and then there's the renewables and that and that the baseload primarily is dirty and that the flexible has some dirtiness as well and that renewables might be cleaner, but they've got an intermittency issue and so they're not, you can't count on them. And you're focusing on those first two, the baseload and the flexible and looking to do so in ways that are both cleaner and less expensive than existing options. Correct. And that's certainly for the powered technologies that we have been developing. Now, outside of that, you know, at Rivers, we've also built out a hydrogen production system, which will deliver, we can create hydrogen with 100% carbon capture, which becomes a replacement option for liquid fuels. Also for fertilizer, you know, hydrogen goes into ammonia as, as a fertilizer helps feed the world. Hydrogen, obviously, it goes into most of the hydrocarbons. It's literally where it comes from, the hydrocarbon fuels that we use. It is the energy carrier that's in that. And so we've been developing a hydrogen technology to try and deal with the liquid fuels market, the clean fuels market, industrial heat. We've been doing point source carbon capture technologies, realizing that we need to be able to suck up CO2 out of the atmosphere in an economic way because we've overshot our target already. Like there's too much CO2 that's going up. We're going to keep putting it up there. We need to work out and scale systems to pull CO2 back out of the atmosphere and so we're very much wider than just power gen we're also trying to deal with industrial emissions or you know technologies to deal with industrial emissions from transportation emissions from fertilizers and then other things such as like i said direct air capture so and i'm not sure whether to be asking what is the eight rivers view or what is the cam view so i guess maybe specify when you when you answer but I'll try the eight rivers. What what's the eight rivers view on the future of like what role do fossil fuels play ten years out, thirty years out, fifty years out? Fossil fuels are abundant. They're everywhere. They are economic. Presently they have a tremendous climate consequence of their use. But they have driven social and economic development. And that if they can be harnessed in a manner which avoids that environmental externality that they should be used. And let, well, let me say that's the CAM view per se, that you know, fundamentally energy is a human mission. Like energy is used to build schools and to deliver power and heat and to provide quality of life. And there's a tremendous amount of the globe 
which doesn't have Western living standards and they should have access to that. Uh, those countries will use the resources which are available to them that will be fossil fuels. I think if you look at any of the projections for what the world is going to be using over the next 50 years, every energy source is growing. The use of every energy source is growing. There'll be more coal, there'll be more natural gas, there'll be more oil, there'll be more renewables, there'll be more nuclear. Everything is going up. And if we don't come up with solutions that effectively meet the world where it is, then we're going to fail miserably at dealing with climate change. And so, you know, whether I think, like there is no moral case per se for fossil fuels one way or the other, they're an object that we can extract energy from and we can use that energy to help drive human development and, and all the benefits that come from that. They will be used. It's incumbent on all of us, or you know, we view it as incumbent on ourselves to come up with solutions that make sure that they're able to be used in a way that drive economic development that will be adopted at scale and, and avoid the environmental externality of it. And I want to make sure I understand, you said that there was a caveat that fossil fuels should play a role if they can do so in a way that, and and I just want to make sure I understand that wording, that that what? What, what do they need to do to be an acceptable part of our long-term solution? We need to stop boiling the planet. Like we, we need to work out a way to use them that doesn't involve relentlessly driving global warming. And at the moment, the, our current the current usage of them are driving an ever-accelerating amount of global warming. Why in the environmental movement, movement is that such a controversial statement? I mean, if it because global warming is what they're worried about, and yet they're convinced that fossil fuels and fossil fuel companies need to die. Why do you think they f- feel that way? Well, I mean, I'm sympathetic to it because people think that, like, there have been no technological solutions that actually deliver a clean outcome today. Look, we believe we're developing a unique set of them. They've got tremendous traction. You know, I, I drank the Kool-Aid 10 years ago on what this thing can do. And so I've, I've had a decade of exposure to it. So I, I've got, I guess, a readiness to accept that this solution is practical and available. And we're seeing tremendous amounts of money shift towards it. And we are moving towards deployment quickly and it's scalable. And I've got the sensor. Everyone who's on the outside doesn't have that. There is nothing else out there. Like that all of the other kind of like proposed solutions for, you know, greenwashing, the, the term exists because it's frankly what most companies have done and what most technologies have been. And it's people are rightfully skeptical of it. Like, you know, the claims that we're making about what our technologies can do, people shouldn't just take them at face value because we say them in a smooth manner. Like, that's exactly why things have failed to date. Like, these things should be rigorously tested. The partners we're bringing in have been doing that rigorous testing on that to to check the, you know, to check the math, if you will. Like, it is checking out. But I think that people are skeptical because it's most... One of the advantages of Eight Rivers being formed 10 years ago is that we don't have a 100-year history of pumping fossil fuels. And, you know, we started this from nothing in order to come up with solutions exactly for this problem you know most of us threw away successful careers or or very much put at risk successful careers in other fields to make a committed movement towards saying look a solution has got to be done to to do this we're not trying to green rock like we eight rivers are not trying to greenwash a multi-billion dollar fossil like fossil pumping business which currently burns it we're developing these things in order to actually meet the solution that's required but i would like to think we come into it with more credibility than most folks but also just because that should not be sufficient people should test it people should be skeptical it should answer to the highest standards on this people should ask hard questions like okay you guys are going to keep burning methane what about upstream methane leakage like what about the fact that pipes leak those are valid questions that we should have answers to and the answer on that should be okay we are looking at solutions to do that as well we should be imposing the highest standards on our technology licensing constructs in order to make sure that we're able to answer those concerns but they're all like there is no perfect answer there's no magic bullet at the moment but we're just as i said i think that's where a lot of the skepticism comes from and there's been increasing amounts of coverage of for instance the net power technology over the last couple of years so it's starting to invade the consciousness a little bit more like i said i've, I've been on a 10-year journey with this thing most people have seen it early And I think they're rightfully applying a degree of skepticism because there's been a lot of panaceas which have been proposed before. 
And as a newcomer, it's confusing to me because it's like, well, renewables, but there's intermittency, but storage and there's long duration storage and the price of lithiums, you know, lithium storage is coming down and, you know, we can make it. Is, is there long duration storage? Well, there's the promise of it and there's tons of capital going into it. I mean, I'm not trained on assessing like our flow batteries ever going to be cost competitive at scale or, or anything like that. But you hear about the, you know, like Form Energy raising this massive amount of capital and, and more news like that every day. And then there's nuclear and there's advanced nuclear and, and then carbon removal and carbon capture and storage at point of emissions and direct air capture. And it's a very confusing landscape for a newcomer to understand. So I guess I have two questions on that. One is, if eight rivers and all the technologies that you are in active development in different phases didn't exist, how do you think that mix should play out without eight rivers? And then if eight rivers is successful, what does that mix look like? And what share did you take in the process of being successful if you had to predict? The, I guess this is one where it's like one of the lessons we've learned is that the economics will control ultimately that, you know, what is the most efficient or what is the most economically deployable solution is what's going to win and the reason i, I start off with that qualification say look my opinion on what should happen like doesn't matter no one's opinion on what should happen matters this isn't a tremendously distributed problem such that it'll be the economics that drive what is actually adopted around the globe and elsewhere there is no should the answer is what will happen following the following the economics like adam smith wasn't wrong all that time ago if the technologies that you know that we've been working on like all of the things you mentioned long-term storage or lithium batteries nuclear advanced nuclear small modular nuclear like every one of those should be pursued relentlessly because this is the most tremendously challenging problem that we as a species face today and what we are doing should not be to the exclusion of anything else. It's all part of a comprehensive mix. And at the end of the day, the right solution will filter out by the economics. And there's not going to be a global right solution. Some things will work in one place. Other things will work in another place. But I would just say, look, it's incumbent on all of us to develop, to be supportive of every technology solution which is being proposed or being chased at the moment, recognizing that you know, we don't have all the answers. We aren't even close to all of the answers. Tremendous amount of work needs to be done in a lot of different technologies. But also the energy transition has to start today. Like if we just say, look, the energy transition is the build out of renewables and that's the end of it. We know today that the renewables are not going to be 100% of the grid anywhere, maybe one or two places. And great if that happens. But like, Unless we're coming up with solutions that can be diverse, that can go into many, many different markets, etc., we're going to lose. We're kidding that, like, sure, we might feel better. Like, okay, oh, look at us, you know, we're doing the cleanest possible thing, but if it's not actually, if it's not deployable at scale immediately starting pretty much today, we're going to lose the climate fight. And you talked about how no other approaches that had tried to clean up fossil fuels are doing so effectively. So the ones that claim to like, you know, like putting scrubbers at the plant at point of emissions. And, and again, I don't know if I'm using the right words here, but and capturing it so that it never makes it out into the atmosphere. So just as one example, where does that or where do most of the solutions that you've seen miss the mark? They're not economic. I'm like a broken record on this, but the, you know, scrubber technology, like there's nothing hard like at the end of the day, chemically, it's not hard to pull CO2 out of a flue gas stream for a, a power plant. Like it's, it's an entirely known technology. It's been done for decades at this point. But the economics are terrible. You end up putting substantial cost onto the plant. It becomes operationally more difficult to do. There's various other byproducts that come out of it. And you still only capture, you know, 80, 90 percent of the emissions coming out. So it's not even a complete cleanup. And so you're putting tremendous energy penalties on these things. What that energy penalty means is that the cost of the product coming out the back end is more expensive. It means the power, your power bill goes up if you're going to do it. And they're not, the technology has been known for long enough about scrubber systems. Like, you know, there may be breakthroughs which, which change the math, but there's no scrubber system today which is actually going to clean up the power gen sector. Like, there's got to be fundamental change. And you talked about how you have some different types of projects in development and and also in different phases. There's power generation, there's fertilizer. I mean, it sounds like a wide 
range, is there consistency when it comes to certain criteria that you look for in any new project that you might take on? And, and relatively, from an expertise standpoint, is it a completely different set of expertise and people within Eight Rivers that's working on these different projects, or is there overlap across? No, I mean, great question. They're not different groups. The lesson that the real lesson that for a, at least me personally, as we went through this was, you know, oxy combustion, learning how to handle CO2, realizing some of its properties, etc. All of which were lessons that we took out of the net power development. We were then literally able to pick up lessons around oxy combustion, you know, different chemical flows, how to and how to handle CO2 through those and kind of almost pick those up and bolt them onto different things that needed solutions as well. And so there has been like an organic pathway in terms of technology development within the business as well, where we've either followed our noses in terms of where the technology applications would lead and what else you could do with it. Or what we've also tried to do is to be market driven or responsive to what customers were telling us that they needed and then using the skill set that the team had to think through what can we use or what new thing could we create kind of like drawing on some of those lessons to solve that problem could we do there so you know it sounds like a tremendously broad range of things but you know underpinning all of those industries that you said at the moment are hydrocarbons and if you work out a way to create you know like if i was to say like there's two key lessons that we've got it's how to make heat in a clean manner and by clean i mean the actual use of like use of hydrocarbons coming in but capturing all of the co2 in a format such that you'll be able to sequester it or do whatever with it in order to make it not show in the atmosphere so number one the creation of clean heat and secondly how to handle co2 to actually separate it out from processes in a manner that's economic and monetizable out of it so you end up with an overall solution which is more economic now when it comes to all of the above they basically rely on heat and they create co2 and so if you say, look, I've got this, my solution one is I'm going to take this clean heat and I'm going to put it onto hydrogen production, or I'm going to put it onto cement production or whatever. Clean heat, like most of the emissions today are come from heat production. So if you say, look, we've got a way to do clean heat, then you've actually just solved a whole bunch of problems. And then if you've also say, look, I know how to extract the CO2 from that process, I know how to use it in a way which is more economic or more efficient, then you put those two things together and you've suddenly like you've got this Cambrian explosion of technologies that are developed on the back end of those lessons. So that's been the pathway for us. And it's also the pathway where I, where I see this going forward. There's a virtuous yeah, no, really kind of heading Silicon Valley here, but like there's an innovation flywheel effect that comes out of this. You know, we created a technology, we put forward a solution, and putting forward the solution, we realized that actually there's more technology that could be created, so you create that and you roll that forward. And that's what we're doing. It's also why as Eight Rivers, we're focused not just on the creation of the technology, but also then putting together projects to actually deploy it. Like we want to have our, we want to have like the dirt under our fingernails. Like you want the people in the field that are learning the lessons or extracting the lessons from that, because then they can take that, they can improve the product, and they can also create new products on the back end of it. I guess to use the true Silicon Valley term, to eat your own dog food. I mean, it sounds like in the net power example, so you develop the technology and then you bring in the capital and then you assist with the deployment. But it, it sounded almost like there's a gradual pass off over time where you maybe move more into an advisory role. Can you talk a bit about which aspects you like to use the net power, you took on yourself and which ones you pass off and at what point? And then also, is it, do you envision that that's consistent from project to project or is it really more project specific and technology specific? I mean, I'd say that that's an evolving story as also our own capabilities are evolving. So the technology was created in-house. We were the corporate founders of the company. Our own team did the vast majority of the early work on the system. And then we brought in a major partner in an engineering firm, what was then uh, Shaw Engineering, ultimately became Chicago Bridge and Iron, ultimately became McDermott, as they, you know, it went through various corporate forms. They then brought the expertise that like an organization with hundreds of thousands of, that has a staff that can do millions of man hours per year work on this that have actually built tremendous scale facilities. They brought all this with the knowledge about how to do that. We then kind of like guided that, but there was a there was a handoff on like drawing the drawings and doing the engineering procurement plans and so forth with that partnership. They developed it to the next point and then we brought in 
Eight Rivers was also, was still managing NetPower at that point. We bought in more partners, Exelon Generation, and ultimately Occidental, and then recently Baker Hughes. And as those organizations came in, they they bought their own strategic capacities. Like, look, we can be innovative outsiders. Exelon knows how to build a plant, and they know how to operate a plant, and to do so safely. And they bought that capacity, and they did that. McDermott knows how to build them. They did that. Baker Hughes can do the turbines. They do that. And so, like, and... As we did that, we effectively were extract we extracted ourselves away from the management and it was stood up with its own management team because it had to be its own entity at that point. But we continued to kind of like we still assist the team, we provide, you know, some degrees of guidance. And now we're actually trying to deploy projects in a partnership model with them too. So it's just an evolution across the life cycle of the technology. But ultimately, these are tremendously large pieces of kit. And the people who truly know how to build them and deploy them and get them out in the field, it is those who have built all the tremendously large pieces of kit that actually exist out in the world today. And so those are the partners you need to bring in because they're also the ones that can deploy at scale. And you mentioned the project finance requirements. I, I did see recently that you raised, I think it was $100 million from SK, and it sounded like it was more at the holding company level. How do you think about finance for projects versus finance for the eight rivers entity itself and what does expansion look like at the entity level so what eight rivers we're building effectively as a i mentioned like as a platform for creation of these things and deployment of these things now when it comes to actual deployment of projects we are establishing project companies and project vehicles and then we'll raise finance directly into those and we have a number of capital partners that we're bought in or in the process of bringing into deployment opportunities for project specific deployments you know that may be like a single power plant in illinois yeah we'll bring in infrastructure finance partners to help build that that's a billion dollar project we're not going to do that through the top go but that there we're basically again we're founding these companies we're establishing and we're bearing the the early costs maturating those project opportunities to the right point when you bring outside capital in in an off balance sheet manner now eight rivers you just mentioned we announced last week that we've actually bought the first external cap some of the first external capital into the top co at eight rivers and that's to build out the platform holding as for the sk inc out of south korea a diversified conglomerate touches on energy infrastructure telecoms other tremendously large group huge capacity you know something north of 100 billion dollars per year revenue going through the group that has also got very very i think sincerely held in aggressive carbon goals they want to be removing 200 million 200 million tons of carbon from their operations by 2030 so they've invested into eight rivers to build out the top co-capacity so we can continue to develop these solutions to partner with them to bring projects into their footprint etc and also together we're going to be establishing a joint venture as a channel into deployment of these technologies across some key asian markets with them because coming back to what i said a while ago the energy transition has to happen everywhere like decarbonizing the u.s doesn't do anything frankly like it's important to do it but you, it's you have to help lead decarbonization everywhere and the deployment of these technologies into the some of these key asian markets they, that's where the energy transition is going to be won and lost is to, whether we can help china on this journey whether we can help africa on this journey whether we can help you know indonesia malaysia these tremendous senses of population growth on this journey and there's a social development aspect to that as well like energy is development and bringing those technologies in to those areas sooner i think is tremendously important one way i like to think of it and you know this is too simple but it's illustrative intended to be illustrative there's probably maybe three investment cycles for infrastructure scale technologies between now and 2050 it's probably only two realistically two full cycles but maybe three and the number of projects which are going to be deployed will be, I like to think of them as probably being like a power function of how many is deployed in the generation beforehand. And so if we start off and, you know, with the technologies we have, if we deploy two in this cycle, then next cycle we might deploy four, maybe six. And then the cycle after that you deploy 16. You just increase by a power function and net net you've deployed 24 odd projects. You know, those may be economically brilliant, you know, they may be, great opportunities, etc. But if you've if you've deployed twenty four power plants and that's it, you actually haven't achieved anything from a climate perspective. You've moved the needle very, 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 very slightly. 
Now, if your first generation of deployment is 10 plants and your next generation is 100 plants and your next generation after that is 1,000 plants, well, now you're talking. Now you're actually maybe making a difference. And so wanting to increase the footprint of the uptake of these first generations of plants is incredibly important. And that's where like a partner like SK is just a tremendous addition to the effort that we're making here to help drive that uptake. And as you said, look, it was $100 million into the Topco. Just, I think, a tremendous show of commitment from them, but also speaks to the readiness of these technology solutions. Like, you know, $100 million, that's real money in anyone's, you know, in any world, that's real money coming into this. And that speaks to the readiness of what's been offered. And how do you balance finding new technologies to bring to market versus scaling what you've got, given how non-trivial it is, as we were just discussing, to get these technologies from the lab through wide-scale commercial deployment? Customer-driven, the the economics drive. A couple of the technologies we're working on have actually been responsive to things that we've been asked when we've been talking to, for instance, a national oil company in, in the Gulf talking about one widget and they say look you know that widget it's not quite what we need or that widget's interesting but can you drive that widget with this fuel and we said the first answer was probably and then we went back and we tried to do the engineering to see whether we could drive the widget with that fuel and realized that actually we could take some of those lessons that I learned about to actually make that fuel itself decarbonized be cleaned up and actually separated out the technologies and we ended up with a new technology offering that was effectively just a treatment a fuel treatment system coming out of that but very much kind of like customer driven in that sense Uh uh-huh and one thing we haven't talked much about yet is government and there's a bunch of different angles that it'd be interesting to talk about government there's the policy angle and how much policy matters and how active you are on that front there's public private partnership there's government r d how do you think about government and how do you resource a government and in what ways if at all the you know these large-scale industrial the industrial sectors that are driving carbon emissions are at the heart of national economies and there is government involvement just by dint of their nature you know it's fundamentally industrial policy that we're talking about the government has been for us and i think has been a tremendously important partner in some instances for development of or you know reading the deployment of some of these technologies i think obviously the government is a key player in the energy landscape today it sets the regulations it sets carbon targets it sets everything else it's you know having government buy-in on the readiness of this is going to be vital for actually achieving anything in this space and are we are we talking about us or are we talking globally right now global global yeah We've been engaged with governments. We'll probably you know, continue to increase our engagement with various governments as the technologies continue to maturate and, and move towards deployment. You know, we want to do these things. Like, you've got to have local buy-in. You've got to have stakeholder buy-in. You're not going to build a billion-dollar project somewhere where it's not wanted. And so making sure that policymakers are well informed know about the readiness of these solutions you know what they can offer in terms of economic and social development like it's all part of the messaging i also think that it's an important to flip this slightly as well governments i think also will need to understand that solutions are available like regulation of carbon emissions doesn't mean you have to turn the lights off like regulation of carbon emissions will drive people towards adopting these emerging solutions and you know whether it's ours or whether it's others like obviously the government can actually drop you know governments everywhere can drive these kind of fundamental decisions but the atmosphere is global we've got to come up with solutions that can be globally adopted and i think that the major markets they can obviously have downstream or upstream effects as well you know, like if America sets carbon intensity goals on products which are coming across the border, then suddenly you're controlling the carbon the carbon goals of the supply chain. And it is a power which is government has, it's incumbent on it to actually use it. We talked before about how everything will be driven by the economics and the markets. We also talked about how so much of what you do is motivated by putting us on a more sustainable path. Have there been examples of situations where impact and profit have not been aligned? And do you have any will not do's that are impact driven versus profit? So 
look, there's certainly some technologies where we've looked at or some deployment opportunities where we have thought, you know, that product, it doesn't fit with the, like the end product coming out of it. It doesn't fit with where we want to be right now. And that's particularly in some of the fertilizer spaces, for example, like there are some fertilizer technologies, which are just incredibly carbon intensive in a way where it's like, look, if we're going to, but their carbon or their atmosphere, you know, their use, even if you drive all of the carbon out of their production, their atmospheric impact is still tremendous no matter what. And go, look, now those feed a massive swath of the globe and they're going to exist for a while at least. But it's like, look, in terms of our, the first efforts of where we're applying this, we'd rather go for a cleaner story in the first instance. And that's not, you know, that's recognizing that this, this story is a messy and we need to meet the world where it is. And like the fertilizer needs to be made, like, no, you're not going to kill it. You're not going to turn off fertilizer production. Like you're not, like a billion people would die if you do that. Probably more. It's going to be produced. But saying, look, in terms of the short term, is that the best place for us to spend our first effort? Probably not, because it's a it's a more complex story than we want to handle on day one. Like, does this head into that space? Yeah, sure. And maybe we can learn some other lessons on the way that also get rid of some of those other environmental externalities off that. But those are real trades that we're doing. You know, I think that equally. There's, as you start to look at these things more closely, you realize that even some things which, you know, are not intuitively, or, you know, in non-intuitive ways, they can enable new technologies as well. Like probably the biggest opportunity for direct, you know, carbon removal from the atmosphere is the use of biomass as a feedstock into carbon capture technologies. Biomass feedstocks, the supply chains don't exist for them at the moment at sufficient scale to be able to run an entire power plant on them. But could you bleed in 5%? of a fuel stream into one of them from a biomass feedstock and actually use that to help create a supply chain for biomass that could eventually become 10% of a, the feedstock, 20%, 50%. Yep, the answer is yes, you could. And so you also have to always be prepared to recognize that the answer will be more nuanced than you expect it to be. Even if you're looking at something where look, the absolute, you'll be like, absolutely, definitely, we should not do this. And then 10 minutes later, someone will, in conversation with someone, you're like, okay, we're actually this is way more complex than my initial reaction on this was, and maybe there is a story for why this should be done. So I think you, there shouldn't be any, I mean, well, there should be some red lines, but I think you should be very hesitant to have red lines around this stuff. And you, you talked about how you start with the problem and then go think about how you might design technologies that could better address that problem, have all the technologies that you've brought to market, been invented in-house. And I would imagine that you have people that are pitching you technologists on the outside, almost like you're a venture capitalist of, you know, of, of these types of technologies. Would you ever engage that way? And have you ever engaged that way? Yeah, absolutely. Look, the majority of stuff that we have done has been developed in-house or it's, and, or it's come from lessons that have been learned from other things that we're doing in-house. But absolutely, we don't have the hubris to say that we're going to invent every solution to everything. That would be an absurd position to take. We actively look at outside technologies. It's something which I think, you know, as we have developed Eight Rivers into more of a technology agnostic platform for delivery of these decarbonized solutions, we'll continue to do so. We're partnering with an Australian technology at the moment to do some first deployments here in the US. One of the lessons which we've also learned over the last 10 years, you know, like we've got this incredible market moment right now and we didn't have that 10 years ago. And so along the way, we learned some pretty hard lessons about how to commercialize these things and how to actually take them out to market and, you know, how you need to position them. And one of the things I would like us to be able to do is to impart or, you know, help other companies or other technologies avoid some of that scar tissue. And, you know, there's a ton of good solutions out there that if we can bring those into projects or into decarbonization solutions for customers, absolutely, I want to do that. Look, I expect we will continue to develop technologies along the way. We'll continue to develop new stuff. We'll, we'll learn lessons. But fundamentally, the most important thing is, like, is not to fall in love with your own product too much. Like there's gonna, you know, I hope that every one of the technologies that we're developing at the moment will be quickly displaced by something which is better. Even better if I've got, if I've built a company that can actually get, that can self-disrupt to speak in cliches again. But there are no silver bullets. There'll be a continuing technology evolution. Some of those will come from inside. Some of those will come from outside. But look, we're open to all comers. You mentioned that you're aiming to truly capture the carbon and 
avoid it from being pumped into the atmosphere. If you had to predict who will be the biggest buyers of that carbon, will it be the government through, you know, 45Q or other policy solutions? Or are you big believers in, you know, converting carbon to valuable products? And and for that latter one, is that part of your role or will you partner when it comes to actually converting that carbon into useful products in whatever form that may take? Yeah, look, certainly I think in the short term, incentives like 45Q will drive sequestration as being by far the biggest use of carbon dioxide captured in the near term, which is great. Sequestration is a permanent solution. The carbon was down there for the last million years. It'll, be, it'll keep it down there for the next million. You effectively extract the value off of the off of the asset and put it back. Uh, like sequestration is a sufficient outcome in and of itself. Now that said, part, you know, looking to do creation of carbon-based products is absolutely something we're interested in we're pursuing we're looking at partnerships with various firms as we do that because (laughs) to harp on the old theme the economics of products are better than economics of shoving stuff down a hole and as we build out a value chain for carbon then that's going to drive adoption and it's also going to offset you know most of those products which are being developed at the moment are currently being developed using emitting technologies and so you it's like a twofer you both you you drive the development of these carbon capture solutions by creating a a more valuable use of the product at the back end and you also get to displace another carbon intensive production process with that too so yeah absolutely hey we can get to concrete we can get to cement we can get to whatever else then absolutely that is a pathway which deserves kind of rigorous exploration Today, the vast majority of carbon will go down a hole. And I know this is not Eight Rivers area of focus, but I'm just curious what role you see things like demand reduction, you know, through behavior change or mandates or whatever, and also just efficiency improvements should play. And I know you said there's no should, so so maybe I'll ask, will play in the transition? At the risk of being controversial, I think it's a full errand. Every energy usage goes up and to the right relentlessly. We're an energy intensive species. I think that there will be reduction in energy uses in limited, and if you take very limited views of things, like you might reduce the amount of energy which is used in transportation. That energy will go towards something else and it will be used to create another widget or to create a plane or whatever else. So I think that people get very myopic about saying look okay we've got to reduce energy for power production and it's like okay great you should do that because that means you're actually being more efficient and it'll be more economic as a result so 100 you should totally do that but that energy is like it's if it's economic to pull it out and to use it we'll create something else with it and so like i and even if you do you know make up a number if you could click your fingers and reduce global energy consumption by 10 percent instantly all you've done is delay the date that we go over 1.5 degrees by a couple of years, maybe. Probably not even a couple of years. What role do you expect natural gas will play in the long term? Is it a bridge or an important part of the long-term solution set? Important part of the long-term solution set. If you can get it to the point of being able to use it without the carbon atmospheric emissions and NOx and whatever else like you, you need to clean up you need to clean it up comprehensively you need to deal with ch4 leakage through or methane leakage through pipelines you need to deal with a whole lot but if you if as we develop solutions to do that and look there will be technological solutions for for all of that i think it will be a key part of the energy resource for both of our lifetimes what about direct air capture yeah i mean there's too much up there at the moment you got to pull it back to it'll be part of the solution set as well Will we ever be able to do so economically at a scale that could even make a fraction of a dent? I'm cautious on that. I think if you'd asked me that two years ago, I would have said absolutely not. As I look at the technology set that are out there today, including some things that we're working on, I say, hmm, maybe. And that direction of travel, you know, things tend to get cheaper over time as you spend more time figuring out how to do it and as they scale. So I could I could certainly see it being part of it. I do think the easier lower hanging fruit and the more possibly more important will be use of biomass energy with carbon capture and storage so whereby we'll actually we'll take a biomass feedstock we'll put it through a combustive process we'll capture the carbon coming out the back end in the form of co2 and then sequester it in the deep carbon cycle i think that ultimately is probably more impactful but i wouldn't make any i don't want to be brave about any predictions in that space you know follow the money 
what percentage of the major power producers of today will be the major power producers of tomorrow? And I'm not talking about the source. So like, it's not the fossil fuels I'm talking about, but the companies themselves. I think that they will remain major companies. But I think if you were to look at the top five companies of 2050, I'd be shocked if two of them aren't energy transition companies, if not three of them. In the same way that like, if you'd asked in like 1995, you know, what will be the biggest companies in the world by 2020? I think that, you know, it was probably somewhat predictable that the technology revolution was going to lead to the Microsofts, the Apples, the Amazons dominating the world like that. We're on the precipice of the most important, but also the most immense industrial and structural change the world has ever seen. And it has to happen in the next 30 years. There are enormously large companies to be made in this space. And if several of them do not come through as some of the biggest companies in the world by 2050, one, if if they aren't, then we've probably failed at addressing climate change. And if they are, then there's a good shot that we've actually actually made it or we've made a difference. What is the Eight Rivers business model? IP sits at the heart of change. If you look at your iPhone, I don't know the exact percentage, but probably somewhere between, at a guesstimate, 70 to 90% of that is IP and royalties, which are being paid. And 10% is probably material costs and 10% is everything else. Those numbers could be off by a good way, but it's going to be, it might be something like that. You know, what we, Eight Rivers today, if you look at energy patent families that mention CO2, we're the biggest holder of IP in the world in that space. A function of what I sometimes jokingly call the dubious advantage of having been 10 years too early in this space. You know, fundamentally, we're an IP company that we're, we're wanting to create intellectual property that can help, that can be licensed out to the world, to industry where it is at the moment in order to help drive the energy transition. We are also deploying the technologies ourselves, like I said. And look, I think as we scale, there's an incredible number of interesting tertiary businesses that can be built on top of that. But in an analog, and look, this is at the risk of overstating it, like an analog I like to think of is Microsoft 1995. It had a technology advantage through DOS and early Windows and so forth that it then relentlessly capitalized on through deployment, refinement, improvement, tertiary product offerings, etc. And that is a model which is a touchstone for me. For anyone listening that's inspired by your work, who do you want to hear from, if anyone, and how can we be helpful to you? We've built this organizational partnership. The industry today, like I, I believe the message would be, look, solutions are there. Like we don't have every solution, but we're looking for partners to take this out to the world. People that have got the, you know, that have the appetite and the ambition to actually try and achieve that fundamental change. And look, there's a the people that want to be involved in the hustle of doing that. You also mentioned, you know, we announced a hundred million dollar investment into the organization last week. We're looking to expand greatly to try and make this offering more global, to make sure that we're delivering high quality projects, successful projects. People that want to be involved in that story, I'd encourage to reach out. And look, I think that there's more opportunity to grow this organization further as well with different capital partners. And last question, Cam, if you could change one thing outside of the scope of your control that would most accelerate your progress towards your mission, what would you change and how would you change it? I'd slow down time. <laughs> the, the challenge of like... If you'd asked me in 2012 how long I thought this would take, I would have said three years. And here we are 10 years later. And these projects, like, you know, we've announced three in the last 12 months. They'll take 12 months-ish to get through their design process ready for start of construction. And then they'll take two to three years to build. And then they'll take a year to commission. And then after that, they'll run for 50 years. But that's a tremendously long life cycle. And if you want to, you know, one of the things that we've spent a lot of time working through, and I I think we've come up with a model and it's working, is to make sure that we don't have to do stepwise like that, because otherwise we won't make a difference. We need to work out how we can deploy more quickly in parallel, or at the very least in lockstep as I go through that. But if there was one thing I wish I could change, it was that the size of the stuff that needs to be fixed and replaced takes long timelines and it's March 2022 and we've got 28 years to do this 
if you just take the arbitrary 2050 date and the having more time or like processes to speed this up would be what I would do. Now, unfortunately, I, you know, no one's managed to control time yet. So that just is what it is. And we kind of have to meet the world where it is on that. But I guess one thing I'm hopeful about is, you know, there's the old saying, it's like you'll overestimate what you can do in 12 months and you underestimate what you can do in 10 years. 28 years is also a tremendously long time for that. And, you know, there is an enormous focus which has moved into the space. I think everyone recognizes that that's the time for deployment or starting this deployment and scale up is now. And so hopefully the world's attention or industry's attention on this stuff can actually help move some of those timelines as well. Anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words? I just said, look, words of encouragement, like what you're doing, Jason, is tremendously important that it takes a village getting the word out there that, look, this is complex stuff, but there are people that are working on counterintuitive solutions that can make a difference and that are being done in good faith, that are actually intended to have a climate impact as well. Like, I think that's a, it's a tremendous service you're doing. And thank you for that. Oh, well, go. You're the one doing the real work. I just get to talk to people doing the real work and ask them lots of questions about it. So, Cam, thanks so much for all the work that you do. And thanks for also making the time to, to come on our little show. So best of luck to you and the whole Eight Rivers team. Awesome. Thank you very much. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.